If you have a Bible with you, you could turn to Romans chapter 16. And as you're turning there, let me just say a couple things to get us oriented together. Uh, first, my name is Lance. If we haven't got a chance to meet, I serve as one of the pastors here, and I would love an opportunity to have coffee or grab lunch or a phone call. So please uh, fill out some information or send me an email or ask after the service. That would be, that would be great. Uh, one of the main things that I get to do as a part of uh, the pastor team here is get to study the Bible together with you. And as we turn to the 16th chapter of Romans, it's a salutation, it's an end, it's a personal greetings of a letter. And the reason we're starting here is because about a year and a half ago or so, we started studying together at the beginning of Romans. We called the theme, or we mentioned a theme over this entire book of rags to righteous. And that is a way for us to describe what we believe is the deepest need and the greatest joy that is being declared in this letter. It's the one thing we shouldn't miss, and that is this, that all human beings have a desperate need for righteousness. We all have a moral compass, an idea inside of us, that we know that things about the world are wrong. Worse than that, we know that inside of us something is wrong. We can't quite be who we would long to be and need to be. That has left us at odds with God. It means that according to Scripture, that even our best efforts are as filthy rags in His sight. And the good news is this, that the God who is perfectly holy was able to justify the ungodly because Jesus lived a righteous life that we could not. And that in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, what's being offered to us, how do we go from rags to righteous and not just rags to less raggy? Well, it's a great exchange. It's unbelievable exchange. It would be slightly good news if I said to you, hey, Here's the deal. All that wrong stuff that you did, the ways you messed up, the, the things you invested in wrongly, the way you, you know, whatever went sideways, I just want you to know you're not going to be held accountable. You got a clean slate from this way forward. And then if I looked at you and you know, somebody patted you on the forehead and said, okay, now try better. Just do a little bit better. Well, you probably know your own heart and your mind. And I could tell you from my own experience, all that would mean is that I would start from a clean slate in order to screw it up again. There's a quote from Anne of Green Gables, which uh, my wife hosted a party for for a sixth grade class or something. I've not read it, but I saw the quote around the house. And it uh, said something like this, tomorrow is a new day with no mistakes in it. And then it's like dot, 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 yet. And so it might be slightly good news. I feel that sometimes people describe religion as that. And what Jesus did is not only forgive you of your sins and say, here's a clean slate. We would all mess it up again. It is much, much better than that. He gives us a wiping away of our sins, and then he exchanges his entire life of righteousness with ours, so that we have not only forgiveness for sins, but we have assurance that we are welcomed into God's presence because we're clothed in Christ. That exchange, that unbelievable event, is what we call good news. It's what churches have proclaimed for 2,000 years. It's at the center of this book, and it's why we called it Rags to Righteous. Now we are turning to the end of this letter. And Paul is going to give his greetings. What we're going to see is a man who is not only an information dispenser, he is not the theological version of a Pez dispenser, he is also flesh and blood united in relationships with the churches that he cares for. And what he always does at the end of letters, he often begins a letter with a greeting or salutation, and then he ends letters with a a few uh, mentions of people. He calls people out who he loves or can't wait to see. Can't wait to see. And Romans is no different, but more. 
It's no different but more. He starts Romans by saying, I long to see you. Your reputation precedes you. I can't wait to get there. And now we have nearly an entire chapter, more than 25 people mentioned in relationship. And I'm going to read through them. You have to bear with me because some of the names are difficult. Some names are easy. There's going to be a Jason in here, which I can pronounce that one all day long. And there's some others that have been lost to us, and we just don't have them. So uh, what I'd like us to do is to look together. If you need a Bible, if you want a hardcover one, there's a black hardcover Bible in front of you. That is yours for the taking. That is preferred pilfering on, the, on our part. Just go ahead and steal that if you need a Bible. But if not, if you have one, I'd love for you to look at the first verse of Romans 16. It'll be on the screens in front of you. Or if you have a, a device with you that has it, I'd love for you to engage your heart and your mind as I read. This is what we find in the beginning of the 16th chapter of Romans. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kencre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Hunia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. And I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Let's take a moment and pray together. God, would you help us now? Uh, we've come here needing comfort. We have hurt others and have been hurt. There is discouragement and distraction. 
Not a lot impressive that we've brought with us here, and so we ask God comfort us and care for us. I also pray for conviction. We all have with us wounds scarred over portions of our hearts and minds, doubts and cynicism, so convict us concerning sin and righteousness. I pray, God, that I could be of help. I would love to be of benefit to your people. You love this group with an intimate understanding, hair-counting kind of love. And I know that your desire would be to bless them. So please bless them and bless me and bless us together as we study Scripture. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul loved people. The church was not placeholder, brains on stick. He was not a mere information dispenser. What we find and what I think we should see in the person of Paul in Romans 16 is a man who knew and loved well the people in the churches that he served. And this is an important thing to consider. I believe it's one of the things that make a local church or make churches in general so amazing as carriers of the gospel. It's a reminder to us that mere information, just giving one another a book, just hiring an airplane to write something across the sky, just mere doctrine or information is not going to be enough to change our lives. It's life on life and person on person to know one another in unity in Christ as the gift of the church. You may say to yourself, well, I don't know what we're going to find. It's so helpful. You just read a whole list of names and I don't know any of these people. I didn't do my eighth grade report on Appels. I did it on Henry Ford or whatever else. Like, I don't know these people. What are we going to get here? And what I hope to offer you By way of encouragement, one, I want to tell you one of the ways that these moments encourage me personally. And then I'm going to give you a few of the ways that I think Paul might be saying to this church in Rome, here's what you should look for and celebrate and care about in your local church. Every time I read a a section like this in one of the New Testament letters, I'm encouraged by Paul's love for people. It was probably about 2006. I think in 2006, if I look back over my life, you know, everybody has these markers I didn't put it in my baby diary, or maybe my mom did, but it would have been a marker for me. 2006, I had a conversation with a local pastor who I had come to trust and know well. And in 2006, my wife and I were seriously considered leaving uh, our hometown, the hometown that I was in, not her hometown. She had actually moved there four years earlier in a show of confidence and love and affection for me. She would later come to endure nine winters there. That's how you count when you move from the south to the north. It was nine winters. And the promise in going there was that I would finish an undergraduate education. We had met doing missionary work. We were going to go and start school. I knew I needed a degree of some kind to go to seminary. And I was, in my mind, perhaps going to pursue an academic life. I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to go off to seminary. And then who knows, maybe stay near a seminary, teach as a professor, And that was a thought that I had in the back of my mind. So we were visiting seminaries. And in the time that we had been finishing school, I began serving as a pastor. got to know this guy well. And he began to ask me questions that proved very helpful to me. He said, hey, I've heard you say a couple times that you've thought about being a professor. That maybe you want an academic life. 
to hole up in your, in your office and just geek out all day long and then go teach. And he said, I, I want to encourage you a couple things. He said, I, I think, you know, maybe you could do that. I just want you to know that I don't think you're wired like that. And I braced myself. I thought, well, this is an insult. Maybe what he's trying to do is to spell out for me, you are D-U-M-B. If you're bad at spelling, I'll let you catch up. So I thought maybe it was an insult, right? That he was just saying, you can't cut it. But he went on, he said, no, no, I mean, if you wanted to, like, I think you love teaching. I think you like to learn. That sounds, that sounds okay. But he said, I, here's what I wonder. I want to know what is it about that that's so appealing to you when you have so many opportunities to teach the gospel and to walk with people in a local church, is it because? And he said, I, I don't know, but I, I want you to think about this. He said, I think that you care about people. I think you connect with them. And I wonder if you don't see working in a church long term as more difficult because of the brokenness and the real human beings that you'll encounter. Just pray about this, he said. Is it possible that you think about an academic life and going off to a seminary somewhere because you think that it would be clean and easy and you could dispense all the information and maybe connect with the kids loosely, but more or less just do this and go home on Friday? And this was a helpful set of questions for me. Because I realized then and there that in many ways, I was in fact wired for people. And my deepest desires and joys were watching someone grow in the knowledge of Christ and then bit by bit, degree by degree, just turn in their sanctification. I began to admire. I went back and I thought, who do I love? Well, I thought of people who had spent 30 or 40 years in the same community and watched people single move slowly in the pews next to someone that they liked and watching the romance bud and getting to officiate the wedding and then praying and crying with them as they sought the Lord for children, rejoicing when kids finally came, and then seeing their children raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord and celebrating baptisms. And over the course of time, I thought, you know, this is the kind of thing that I could give my life to. Even though I do believe that the greatest gift, the greatest wonder of a local church is the people. The church is just full of people, and that's such a blessing. But you know what else is true about the church? It's full of people. <laughs> and all of us who have lived for more than a day, maybe, I don't even know if you can do that, realize that relationships take effort. They're difficult. We are often unable or not aware enough of our own difficulties, our own motivations, Sin wreaks havoc in our lives and those around us. And it would be very easy to say, I'm committed to the gospel. I love doctrine. I love thinking. But this whole living around with... <laughs> living around, it sounds like a, talking about like a promiscuous person. This whole living in community with people... This whole com in community with people is too hard. And so when I read the New Testament, as much as I've loved the way that Paul described the gospel, probably the best articulation of the good news in Christ anywhere to be found in the world, we've made that argument. There's something instructive here in the way that he loves. Paul was not an itinerant missionary 
who was so important and connected to his works of literary brilliance that he would give the speech and then his handlers would come and whisk him off stage. I don't know what the, the equivalent of a limousine is out back or some sort of car service. The, the three camel cart he gets to jump into and he says, oh, I don't have any time for the common folk. No, you see the people that are in these churches, he knew them by name. He knew their stories. And as he wrote this letter, he's saying, oh, my fellow workers in Christ. And he's thinking about Prisca and Aquila. And he's realizing the numerous times in the New Testament that they show up. And he's saying, I remember. I remember what they said and how they encouraged and the meal that we shared. And this list of people are those whom he loves. And I'm encouraged personally because it is, after all, the greatest gift of a local church. It is the people who've been redeemed by God and who will be carried away together in his presence one day. So one of the first things that we need to do, I think, as we pause and think here, is to be in awe and in wonder at the variety of people, the scope of the impact of the gospel that Paul gives us just a peek into, just a slight opening of the veil into these relationships. There will be some in this list who we'll know quite a bit about. They're elsewhere in the New Testament. We can put the pieces together and say, we know who this is. Others who we have no idea. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down this section that we just read together, and I'm going to give you three words that start with V that help us to remember, I think, going to be helpful in the way that Paul's communicating. The first I already dropped. I said that we are going to think about the variety of people in the church, the variety and the scope of those who have come to know Christ. That's going to be one thing we look for in a church. It's what Paul's excited about. This is what he gets excited about. What animates Paul? First, the variety of relationships. Second, what animates Paul? The need for vigilance. He's telling the church in Rome, you've got to be vigilant. That's what he says when he says, watch out for There'll be some rabble-rousers in the mix, and you've got to watch out for them. So he's, pray, he's telling them to be vigilant. And then finally, he is going to promise them and to tell them to think about the victory that they're going to have in Christ. So those words, if I had to hang some thoughts on them this morning, I'm saying let's think about the variety of people who come to know Christ. Let's think about the vigilance necessary for those who would seek to undo unity. And then finally, let's think about the victory that we have promised to us. Let's consider some of these people in the list. There are some things that are known, other things that we can surmise, and even a few things that we can wildly speculate. So jump in with me and let's look at this unbelievable list. There are more than 20 24, 25, 26, depending on how you look at names and households. And Paul gives by name many of them with details of what they've done. There are people who, it seems, are famous for their work and would have been known to the church at the time. The first person we should probably think about is Phoebe. She's introduced as our sister Phoebe. Two good indicators. One, sister. Second, she has a feminine name. This is a woman in the church she is likely a part of a, a large house church just outside Corinth near the coast. And she is described by Paul with glowing terms. One, he commends her. The reason that it's likely that she is listed first is because she is probably the carrier of the letter. You ever think about basic things and be amazed by them? You think, oh yeah, someone had to bring the letter. 
They didn't just go to the bookstore in Rome and find a Bible fully printed. Phoebe had the wonderful, amazing gift of being the bringer of this letter to Romans. I don't know why I never thought about this before, but I can imagine Phoebe, however she traveled with her backpack or her messenger bag or whatever she had, tucked in it the manuscript of the book of Romans. Perhaps she was the first to fully read it along her way, about to unveil it, about to show the church in Rome just what it is that we had in Jesus. I watched portions of the Beatles documentary over the last couple of months. One of my sons was, uh, watched it all the way through, and there were a couple of moments that we really were in awe at and thought, wow, that is so true. You get an inside look. It's on Disney. You get an inside look as the Beatles are writing some of their songs, and there will just be this moment where one of them says, hey, I have an idea, or I wrote this down. What do you think of this? And then he just sits down and plays Let It Be. And you realize that they're captured in the moment is the first time that carried along in the heart and mind or brain of this musician, it is being now ushered into the world. It's really remarkable. And Phoebe, right here in this moment, is a person like that. She is carrying with her, I believe, the greatest letter ever written in the history of the world, and it's about to be brought into view for all of those who are following Jesus. And for this task, she is commended and said that she had been a patron of many, including himself. Phoebe was likely an influential connector, potentially independently wealthy or a businesswoman of sorts, who had either reasons for travel or was traveling specifically just for this letter. But in all of these things, Paul gives a word to her that is interesting to think about. He calls her a servant of the church. And that word servant is the word in the New Testament, deacon. She was a deacon of the church. Now, in the New Testament, this word deacon is used in a couple of different ways. You may be saying, wait, when I was a kid, Deacon were like the the rulers of the church. These are the people that made all of the decisions. It's not always used like that in the New Testament. There are many times where the word servant or deacon is used for someone even who served as as a guard in the Roman Empire. So it could be used loosely to describe honorable service in some way. Or it could be described as someone who was sanctioned and commissioned and honored by the church to serve the mission of the gospel. Much ink has been spilled over which one it is here. People are wondering, is Paul saying there should be men and women who serve in this way? Is it a role? Is there authority? How does this function? And in many ways, I would just say that that is an adventure in missing the point. Phoebe was awesome. And what I mean by awesome is is that she had the character of Jesus to leverage and take all that she had in humility and to say, how can I move the gospel mission forward? And I would say that in our church, as in any across the world, the example that should be set is essentially this. However and wherever and in whoever you see that spirit of humility and that spirit of consistent service, then honor is due. And you should delight in saying, this person is a deacon of the risen Christ. Phoebe was that kind of person. Phoebe is just one of nine women. Some people would say eight or nine hunia later in the list. People say, is this a man's name, a girl's name, or how does this work? We're not really sure. But there are probably nine women listed in this list. 
So if you say there are a few more than 20, then at least a third, if not between a third and a half women. Many, many men as well. There are married couples, the first of which that is introduced is Prisca and Aquila. They are mentioned here as well as in Corinthians and in Timothy. This combo platter in other places, Priscilla and Aquila, was pointed out to me earlier today, it's a rhyming marriage, that these two were a wonderful gift to the church. They were, by some definition, nearly any definition, a power couple. They taught well and hosted well and loved well and served well. They, according to Paul, risked their necks for his life. In fact, it is pretty clear that these two had been very fundamental and foundational to the first two missionary journeys that Paul had been a part of. They were likely with him in Ephesus as he served there, and now they are in Corinth as well as he is about to send the letter off to Rome. Other couples include likely Andronicus and Hunia, were well known to the apostles, likely means that they were known by the apostles themselves as faithful, as well as what I would call small a apostles in the New Testament. We know that in addition to those who spoke authoritatively the doctrine of the church, that there were many, including the 70 that Jesus sent out two by two, as well as many of the 120 post-resurrection of Jesus, that many were simply sent as missionaries across the known world. And this couple would have been one of those. There are many others in this list, perhaps my favorite, who apart from their name listed here, we know nothing about. They are, in that way, nearly anonymous. I'm inspired by these people because it reminds us that the goal to be important in God's eyes is not to be famous or to have more followers or to be published in a certain way. I have a good friend. He serves as an elder at one of the Four Oaks congregations. I was working across from him in a coffee shop. Now, he works at, the, at, at FSU, and so he is hip to all of the cool things that the young folk are doing. And I don't know if you know this, but stickers are all the rage right now. Like, stickers are amazingly cool, apparently, when you're seven and when you're 20. That's how, this, that's how life works. Nothing else in between. And the people that I know who are around colleges and kind of young folk, they just put stickers on everything. Stickers on their water bottle, stickers on their laptop, stickers on their jeans, stickers on their Bible covers, just everywhere. It shows where you've been. It's essentially analog Instagram is kind of what I'm thinking it is. And my friend, who I'm sitting across from working in the coffee shop, he has an amazing array of stickers. And I got to admit, though I'm not a sticker person myself, I felt like I knew him better, and I had good conversation with him, and I thought, oh, interesting. My favorite sticker on the front of his laptop is a quote that, this is a wonderful irony, I can't remember who said it, and you'll see why that's ironic in a second. But the quote is this, preach the gospel and be forgotten. I forgot who said the thing. <laughs> and there was actually a quotation which I felt was an insult to the spirit of the quote, quite honestly. He's probably like, no, don't quote me. But that idea, preach the gospel and be forgotten as a way of life for those who are in the church is such a beautiful, beautiful thing to behold. So Paul names out people who otherwise are completely lost to history. 
There's none of this like, oh, the guy came from the back annals of the dusty den and says, actually, Josephus mentions him here. We don't have that anywhere. There are so many. In fact, the church itself is built on the backs of men and women who have been determined to follow Jesus faithfully and to proclaim the gospel and then to be forgotten. Not all of them were forgotten, though. In this same list, Paul seems to indicate a close affinity with and an understanding of people who could only be considered cultural or political royalty. There are some who many believe were connected either by family or by marriage to people who had been Caesars themselves or rulers or kings of regions. And those people are named in this list. There are others who were simply famous for their exploits. Some who had been enslaved and are now free. Many who had huge homes and influence and businesses. They were politically somebody. They were in the room where it happens. They were of the elite. And Paul greets them very honestly and frankly and directly with joy that they are in Christ. In addition to men and women and married couples and singles and unknowns and very famous knowns, there are some who are likely connected from the very beginning to the life and ministry of Jesus. We are told in verse 13 that Rufus should be greeted. Greet Rufus. Rufus has perhaps a double honor in Scripture, one being a wonderful name. The second, potentially the likelihood that Rufus' father was none other than Simon of Cyrene, who happened to be passing by and carried the physical cross of Jesus to Golgotha. Mark chapter 15, verse 21 records this, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, it is possible that it's a different Rufus. Two things make us think that it was likely the same guy. One, he is already known and in and amongst Christian circles. So the fact that he is written about twice and not explained here in Romans makes one think that this person would have been known. Second, it's an uncommon name, not named anywhere else in Scripture. In this list, Paul is describing the joy that he has in seeing life happen for those who are in Christ. And life happening in all kinds of places. Paul was happy to see Jesus change the rich and the poor. Paul was happy to see Jesus change the influential and famous and the completely and utterly unknown. Paul was happy to see Jesus change and then compel forward men and women. Paul was happy to greet married couples and singles. Paul was happy to say, greet the household of so-and-so. You have in his mind that he thinks, oh man, when I swoop in there, I am going to absolutely ruffle some hair and, and just hold a baby or two. I can't wait to see the hope of Jesus coming to the entire household of these people that I meet. Paul is happy to see how Jesus changes those who were formerly enslaved 
and the slaves in households of people in Rome and those who are at the height of political power and prowess. It seems, some, it seems that some of these relationships not only continued but multiplied. He writes later the book of Philippians from a Roman jail when he finally gets there. In chapter 4, verse 22, Paul says this, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What is being described for us here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is not only good news because it wipes away our sin, and it's not only good news because it gives a righteousness to us that we could never earn and will never be taken, but it is good news because it is for everyone in every place, from every kind of background. It cuts across class and race and culture and gender and all of the other ways that the world tries to set up divisions. Jesus is life for everyone. The church is made up of an unbelievable variety of people. Now, what I wanted to call this section, what I longed to say was the diversity of the church. And unfortunately, because of much of the turmoil and divisions and sin from many different directions in our world, the word diversity has been stolen in many ways. My guess is that if I said, oh, we should celebrate the diversity in the church, that some of you would cringe and think, oh, where are we going? And others of you may say, oh, finally, and you're trying to lean into this. And might I just say that if you are talking about a diversity that means that people from every one of these places joyfully have a oneness and unity in Christ, then I would say, absolutely, this is what Paul's talking about. And I would furthermore say this, that real reconciliation, the breaking down of barriers, the ending of things being segregated, the, the halting of partiality, the stopping of suspicion, if, if those things are in view, then we should not only rejoice, but we should welcome them as what I would call a fruit of the gospel. These things are going to be, this unity in diversity and a variety of people from every place worshiping together is going to be a fruit. It is downstream of the gospel. It is absolutely to be rejoiced in and to be received. And we should be careful not to take something that is downstream from the gospel and replace it as the gospel itself. And we should not take something that is the fruit, this very real unity that's coming, that's the fruit of it, and try to manufacture it in some way by our own power. In fact, I believe that the more that you try to, in human power, manufacture a sort of propped up kind of variety of diversity that is void of heart change and life change and an authentic welcome in Christ that you actually create more divisions and invite people to see others as part of XY group. When I say fruit of the gospel, here's what I mean. The message of reconciliation to God and then to one another is a deep-rooted tree that goes down into the life of the Spirit of God itself. And as we dive into that and dig into that and give growth to that emphasis on the atoning work of Christ on the cross and in the power of his resurrection, there will be fruit come out. It's a multi-fruited tree. That's what it is. I don't know, maybe some arborist or some uh, garden, I was going to call him a garden weirdo. I'm sorry, you're not. But some garden person maybe could create a tree that does a bunch of different fruits, but just imagine all these possible choice fruits, one tree. 
I think sometimes what happens is we become so enamored by a particular fruit that we neglect the life of the tree that produces the fruit. And what ends up happening is you can have a shriveled up, terrible looking tree that eventually can't produce fruit at all, so you manufacture your own. You get the breast printer possible, you get a, three, a 3D image, but it's really on 2D paper, and then you start stapling it to the branches. And I believe that apart from the unifying power of Jesus, much of what passes as unity today in our world is really a kind of flimsy, 2D, papery, printed, stapled on fruit. But it is devoid of the life change, the spirit that moves in us to say, we are one in Christ despite all of these differences. So what that means for us is that we need to be careful and to humble ourselves and to admit that sometimes we have not seen the fruit of this variety because we have intentionally sought to chop it off. And we're not the ones who invented this. It's not just the Western world. All the way back in Acts chapter 6, one of the first instances of the church, they were already saying, hey, help all the widows, but not the Greeks. Don't let the, you know what the Greeks are like. And we know that in Galatia, racial and cultural tensions kept them from eating meals together. People have a constant temptation that where this good fruit of unity comes across barriers, when it comes, people say, ah, I don't want that. I want all that Jesus has for me, but not those people. And if and wherever that has been the case, in our history or now, we need to say, let's be humble enough to consistently knock down those artificial barriers. Let's get rid of those barriers Let's say, God, help us to not put in your way or not halt the good work of the Spirit you want to do. And at the same time, let's remember that our job is not to manufacture the fruit, that fruit comes through the life of the tree of the gospel, and that that ought to be the ministry that we are about. I know there's a ton of nuance in this. My guess is is that many of you are sitting back and you're saying to yourself, boy, we could have a few cups of coffee about this one. And I would say, let's have a few cups of coffee about this one. That's a wonderful thing to talk about. But what must be seen is that across cultures, across continents even, how would you love to be that guy who is the first convert in all of Asia? Istanbul, which is on the top corner, the northwest of, of Turkey, is actually a split city. There's a Bosphorus. Part of it's in Europe. Part of it's in Asia. Most of the churches that Paul ministered in would have been Asia. And this person is described as the first convert. So across continents and cultures and races and socioeconomic status, they are one in Christ. The church in Rome is a beautiful place. So if they're one in Christ and they're all these people together, what could hurt it? What could harm it? Well, he says, here's where you need to be vigilant. He tells them in verse 17, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Watch out means to be vigilant. Don't be naive. He even says later, some people get deceived by smooth talk and flattery. Why do they get deceived? Well, partly because they're naive. So he says, don't be naive. There will be some people who cause divisions on purpose. Now, do you notice how different this is? Romans chapter 14 and 15, he says, there's divisions among you, but if it's a matter of conscience, Love one another, honor one another, receive one another. In fact, I would say even what he says at the verse 16 of 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. I have no idea how involved the kissing was, but it was a demonstrable show of their unity. 
In other words, what Paul, I think, is trying to say, culturally speaking, I think our handshake or a a hug or the fist bump of fellowship or whatever you give, I think could be similar, could be similar. It's a demonstrative idea of the welcome. In their culture, what it meant was this. Don't just look at one another and say, in my heart, I appreciate and welcome you. But to demonstrate this, and I want you to note, chapters 14 and 15, he says to people who have very real differences, I can't eat that meat. I can't believe you're eating the meat. I celebrate that day. You don't celebrate that day. I accept this and you don't accept this. He says, if that's the case and you've done the hard work to come to a matter of conscience, then here's what you do. Greet one another, welcome one another with a holy kiss. But there are some among you, and it's going to take discernment. Don't be naive. It's going to take discernment. There are some among you who are not divided over matters of conscience. They are divided over matters of of their own appetites. They're They're divided by and they're bringing division because they want to watch the world burn. I don't know how much of that destructive tendency you have in you. I tend to believe because I'm human, everyone has a little bit of it. You know, like you built Lego blocks as a kid and you got a ton of joy out of that, but then there's just something about being reckless and being like, but also. And what Paul says is that don't be naive in your church. There will be people who are rabble-rousers. They like to make people uncomfortable. They are not there for the glory of Christ. They want what they can get for themselves. And you, in the same way that you should do the hard work to figure out who is disagreeing based on conscience, you should do the hard work to figure out what is the motivation of this person. And when you find someone who is teaching false doctrine or causing divisions because they love themselves rather than Christ. He doesn't say run to them and greet them with a kiss. He says, avoid them. Avoid them. The picture is as far as you can scoot away, scoot away and don't let them break your unity. It's a sobering reminder. It's a sobering reminder that Sin will often intentionally move us toward points of disagreement. That there are those who would instigate that kind of disagreement. And rather than engaging in the conversation to bring about resolution, they engage in the conversation because they love the energy of a good fight. And Paul says, when you see those kind of people, don't welcome them. But learn Grow in your discernment over that kind of thing and make a judgment to avoid them. The marks of the church in Rome are these relationships and the people coming from a variety of places. And the marks of the church in Rome was a growing discernment, not being naive over what kind of division can come. And then finally, Paul says, here's going to be a mark of the church. You're going to be those who are holding on to the promised victory given to us in Christ. Verse 20 says so directly that in the future, in the coming day, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And this is a matter of grace. When I was around 19 or 20 years old, I learned guitar a little bit. I was terrible then and I'm mostly still terrible. But I had a job ministering to kids. Back at the church that I was back at, at home when I was 22, I applied for a job to be the director of children and families. 
And it was a big operation. There was between 150 and 200 kids, and we had a VBS and an Awana program and all these things. And so it was a big job for me, a tall job. And the thing that I enjoyed the most in the midst of it was that I got to debut my guitar skills. And we would have VBS, or we'd have children's church, and it was the one place that I got to go, and kids didn't care that I was terrible or that I stopped playing or I got the chord wrong, and we would just absolutely go nuts. And I think the first song that we really went for was a song called Romans 16, 19. Have you heard this song? Romans 16, 19 says, it's like, it's like that. Well, the end of it is verse 20. So the song should be called Romans 16, 19, and 20 says, but it's 16, 19. The end of it, there's this point where it says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan, crush him underneath your feet. And I would have these kids, and we'd start out low, and I'd get helpers, and I'd say, and the God of peace, and someone would yell out, peace will soon crush Satan, and then all the kids would go, crush, like this, crush. And they'd say, we'll crush him underneath your feet, and then someone would say, where? And we'd say, underneath your feet, where? Underneath your feet, and the third one, we'd jump up in the air as high as we could, and we'd just stomp our feet. And when we get the kids going together in this, and I got the guitar and I'm in the middle, and we're looking around, and it's a crowd of everybody, and we start out low, and we're really low, and we're quiet. And by the end of it, then I would just start repeating the thing at the end. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, crush. And then the kids are helping me, saying, where? And we're going back and forth, back and forth, and it's getting louder and louder and louder, until finally we are just a raucous crowd over and over, and me saying, underneath your feet, and we're just jumping up and down, and just sla- slamming the ground, slamming the ground. And anyone who had looked would have thought, boy, you guys got really crazy in there. And I came to believe that, you know, it was more crazy. What was more crazy is that a verse like that could be read in a solemn setting like this. And that the kids who stomped around and jumped and said, victory is coming and Satan's going to be underneath our feet, that they were having a more fitting response than those of us who can so easily read this and then say, boy, this latte is really good. (laughs) Hey, uh, where were we at? Oh, yeah, we were at the promise of all evil being vanquished eternally. So anyway, uh, man, FSU's looking great, huh? What I don't want us to miss is that these churchy words all strung together are the greatest promise in the history of the universe. That Paul's ending Romans his letter in 16 to them with this idea, just remember, you can hold on. When the divisiveness people come and they're just stirring up everything and it's terrible, remember, you'll have victory. And remember, when you're disagreeing over days and food and everything seems so difficult, when you're fighting yourself, your own battles and temptations and addictions, remember, victory is coming. And when you can't shut up the voice of the accuser in your mind and in your heart who says, did you do enough? Did you say the wrong thing? Are you enough? Are you going to make it? Are you not going to make it? That eventually that voice will be shut up forever. And this promise has been at, it's been the through line of the Bible from beginning to end. This imagery of God crushing Satan under his feet, where does that come from? Is he just making it up? No, Hebrews chapter 2 says the same thing. And I believe that it all comes from this imagery of Genesis chapter 3. It turns out the Romans are not just ending with this. The Bible starts with this image. This life is worth living. We can enjoy our unity together even as we fight through difficulty. Because there is victory coming over Satan. 
Genesis chapter 3 is the wah-wah passage of, the, of Genesis. Everything's great for a few chapters. Sin comes in. And then there are punishments doled out. And right in the midst of the punishment doled out to the serpent is that he will forever be on the ground and slither around. And then verse 15 brings us this, what many call the proto-euangelion, the first mention of the gospel. Where's the hope in all this punishment? Well, he says in verse 15 of Genesis 3, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And I want you to note this. There's a battle pictured of snake biting at heels and causing little wounds, but eventually what? A heel. You shall bru- he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. The imagery in the picture here is that Satan will nip at the heels of this offspring of the woman eventually and will cause some harm and it'll all come to a close when the heel finally lifts and comes crashing down on his head. And it's that promise and that imagery that runs as a through line through all of the Bible And Paul is saying to those in Rome, I can't wait to get to you. I know all of you by name and your your faith has been told of me and I hope that I get to you eventually. But I want you to know you can hold on because one day we'll celebrate together. You might not see it yet. We look kind of wimpy now. But did you know that this gospel is marching forward to a victory parade? Did you know that you're the winning battalion? You see, the kids are jumping up and down to the song because they're like, not only is Satan going to lose and God's going to win, but where's he going to be? underneath my feet. And this is an encouragement to the church. You know what marks the church? An undying faith that no matter how weak, how small, how embattled, that the church crushes in the end. The gates of Haiti themselves can't stand against this march. It's a mark of the church. So, as we receive all that has been given to us in the gospel, may we rejoice in the variety and scope of those who come. Let's be vigilant to protect the unity that's been given to us and not forget that victory is coming.